Hello and welcome to Stig Abel's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and to a very special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, which is out in November 2020, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute remember that, and came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. This week, we're going to focus on American classics. In my book, I wrote a chapter about two important examples, Moby Dick by Herman Melville and Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. My special guest this week is the comedian and writer David Baddiel, who, as well as being a very fine stand-up, is a deeply literary person. One of his great novels is The Death of Eli Gould, a book which is actually about the great American novel itself. He is, therefore, the perfect person to talk about the pleasures of American fiction. David, hello. Uh, hi, Stig. How are you doing? Very good. You'll have to correct you, even though it was very lovely what you said. It's, it's The Death of Eli Gould. Uh, and the reason I'm correcting you is not just to correct you in a slightly pernicious, offensive and annoying way, uh, but because it's kind of funny, because I came up with that title... Because uh, it sounded to me like a great fictitious American novelist of the sort of yeah. sort of stripe, but then it turned out that in The Good Wife, Alan Cummings played a character called Eli Gold, and thus when the book came out, I was assailed by people who thought their favourite character oh. had, died, had died, and I'd written a book about it. Um, so that was really unfortunate. I, I remember that character; he was very good in it. It was quite, it was quite a jolly thing. That yeah, well, I should, you're right. I should have called him Eli Gould, and then none yeah. of that would have happened. Oh, well, I don't know why I wrote Eli Gould because I have read, you know, I have read the book with great pleasure, David. Uh, as you know, you sent it to me. Do you remember when we first met? You sent me this book. I uh, and uh, I had I'd, I'd read your other some of your other novels, mm. but that one really is about American fiction, is it? That that is that is utterly saturated in the concept of American fiction. Well, it is. It sort of comes out of my obsession with American fiction post-war. I would say American fiction, so not Nathaniel Hawthorne or you know Moby Dick, like you've been talking about. Um, but um, it's also got something very specific in it, which is about the death of greatness. That's what the book is about. The death, particularly male greatness and I'm sort of there's many many types of male greatness that have been dying I would say culturally over the last 50 years but the one I was interested in sort of envisioning as the sort of acme in a way of, of male greatness of the type I wanted to talk about was the Saul Bellow, John Updike, Philip Roth, Norman Mailer, or the yeah. people that David Foster Wallace who himself I would say was one of them but called the great male narcissists the ultra male uber male alpha male sort of american novelists uh dom de is another one there's so many of them uh who bestrode american fiction but also kind of world fiction because they were you know bella winning the nobel prize for literature whatever they were sort of when i was growing up and getting into books all those guys in a very priapic way were considered to be you know the uh, the 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 best that writing in english could offer and their reputation has massively suffered, I think, with changes in political understanding about women and about race and all the rest of it. Um, so that book, without wishing to blow smoke up my own ass, did slightly uh, presage that, whatever the word is, was slightly ahead of the game. Prefigurative. Yeah, it sort of predicted, or certainly it was about the death of that type of male, assumed literary but not just literary, kind of very, very almost physical, like all these guys, particularly Mailer, you know, actually lived life. And Eli Gold lived that life. He had four yeah. wives. He tried to kill one of them. He was presently actually in his, on his deathbed with his fifth wife and having a young child, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was all that kind of thing. And actually came out of, which I think is relevant to what we're saying. I don't know what's going on, but I remember reading that on Saul Bellow's deathbed, well, in his obituaries, his wife was present, Janice, who would have been about 40 at the time when he was <laughs> in his 80s, and his child with Janice, who would have been about eight. And that's what inspired the book, because the opening of The Death of Eli Gold is from the point of view of Eli Gold's daughter, who is uh, Colette, who's about seven. Uh, and I was interested in what's that like, that need for the great male to continue, you know, reproducing himself and spreading his seed, both artistic and actual, into the world. What's that like from the other point of view, from the child, yeah. from the wife's point of view? Because that's what I felt was what was missed out in the time of their golden age. Uh, there's lots to talk about there. Before we get to this idea of the end, the passing of these great male novelists, the one you're going to talk about is, is probably the poster child for this, maybe. Can yeah. you remember? I can remember... The first time I got into what 
I would say is American fiction, the idea of the American voice. Mm. Uh, I remember the book that got me into it. it was The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. I was 15 when that came out. I probably read it when I was about 18. I remember going around saying, God, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections is a great book. And someone yeah. took me to one side and said, if you think Jonathan Franzen is good, you should really read John Updike. Right. And at that point, I kind of got into America a bit with Hemingway when I was a teenager. Mm. But Franzen sent me to Updike. And at right. that point, I suddenly got a concept of this world of literature that was familiar enough for me to understand, but exotic enough for me to find fascinating. And it was this sort of Americana world. Mm. And that's what got me into it. Can you remember what sort of drew you in? It's really similar, except it's slightly less American, <laughs> um, which is a shame for this podcast, but it's a really similar experience, uh, which is when I was about your that age, between sort of 15 and 18 or whatever, uh, Martin Amis was my favourite novelist, oh, um, yeah. who probably is the British novelist, most like a great male narcissist. Um, you know, like a sort of, you know, uh, when I was growing up, not just, again, not just the books, but his whole persona and being Kingsley's son uh, was all seemed to be part of that kind of like strapping, clever, funny, uh, you know, British novelist. And so I thought he was the bee's knees. I still think he's a really good novelist, particularly his early stuff. So I'm not doing him down that much, but I'm a bit because I was then at Cambridge University and I went to a lecturer. There was this very uh, sort of uh, virtuoso, slightly flamboyant lecturer called E. Griffiths, who's died recently. Yeah, Eric Griffiths. Um, yeah, Eric Griffiths. Do you know him? Well, he used to write for us. But he also, um, when I was uh, in my third year, uh, I was going to do a uh, dissertation on Samuel Beckett. And I went to see right. him and he said, uh, of course, you could do this dissertation. You can be on time in Samuel Beckett, which is an impossible thing to write about. And he said, all you need to do is be able to read uh, Beckett in both French and English, read all of Proust and read, I think, St. Augustine in the original Latin. Right. And at that point, I said, I'm going to do, yeah. a, Victor I'm going to do a paper in Victorian fiction and read Dickens. It's too difficult yeah. to me. So yeah. I, I, know exactly, yeah. I know exactly who he who is. OK, cool. So, well, for anyone who doesn't know, he was a very flamboyant, I think, gay lecturer. Uh, very amazing in the sense that, you know, hundreds of students would turn up to his somewhat performative lectures. <laughs> and he was quite, he was like, a, you know, he's really good. He's a very really close reader. And he used to uh, just produce these sentences and, uh, and talk about them, you know. And I had never heard of John Updike. Never heard of him. And he suddenly started talking about John Updike. And I can still remember the sentence. It's from Couples. Uh, John Updike's great, uh, you know, the best-selling thing that made him get on the cover of Time in whatever it was, 1968. His great wife-swapping odyssey. Yeah. Um, he, there was a sentence in that about a woman uh i think it's probably piet hanneman's wife who i think is called angela anyway she's having an illicit relationship of course and she's pulling down a man's wife fronts and here's what eric was interested in right eric who probably liked this for very specific reason <laughs> up like says she pulled the waistband down and around right and he loved that. He loved the extra detail of and, and around. But what I liked was the next bit, which just happened to be still up there on the screen because he, you know, was using slides. Uh, so it, it was her gaze became complacent. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't think I've ever heard a vision, a gaze described in a way that so lets me know what she's, what her face is like, and yet is also really filling me in with a whole landscape of her mood and her erotic idea about this. And it's just a word I've never expected to hear associated with that thing, a gaze, a, a sexual gaze. And yet I know it. I can yeah. feel that that is the correct word. And that, at heart, there's many other things that we could talk about them, is the key to why John Updike is a very, very great genius. Because, to go back to Martin Amis, Martin Amis once said in one of his essays about literature, he said that, when you're a novelist, a literary novelist, presumably, I'm not sure Dan Brown thinks like this, but when you're a literary novelist, he said, in a very kind of letting light in on magic kind of way, he said, sometimes you have a notebook and you write down your 20 killer similes or metaphors or, you know, phrase making ideas in that notebook and you sprinkle them, he says, maybe 20 of those throughout the book. He says, when you read John Updike, there are 20 on every page yeah. and eventually you become, he says this, suspicious. That's a very good word. That's almost up there with complacent. Like, that's a really good word. He says, as a novelist, you just can't really believe this is happening. And that's completely true. Updike at his height 
every single sentence describes the world anew. Ian McEwen, when I did, I did a thing when uh, John Updike died, me and Ian McEwen and Hermione Lee, this <laughs> very literary thing, uh, at um, Ruskin College, Oxford, where Updike did an art course at Ruskin College, Oxford. They had a little kind of lecture memorial thing that the three of us did. And Ian McEwen said, who will describe the world new now? And that's true. That's true. You read John Updike, if you like John Updike, and you read him because you think very, very ordinary things. We'll come to it in a moment, but this very, very important phrase in Updike that he gave the mundane its beautiful due. His, he yeah. always was trying to write about very, very ordinary things, but he made them extraordinary by describing them in ways that you thought, I've never heard that ordinary thing described in that way. It is not ridiculous or strange or fantastical as it might be in Anthony Burgess or whatever that he's using that word it's completely the right word and yet I've never heard anyone use that word so I mean the book such as you're talking I mean we're talking about all of Updike and we'll talk a little bit about the problem of late Updike for example you know yeah. the idea of, of damaging his own reputation a little bit but the, the central book in, in Updike sorry can I just can I just ref- I got that wrong because I don't have my notes what McEwen said sorry don't hold that well, thought yeah. because he said such a shame Who's going to name the world now? It's much more beautiful than, than my misremembering of it. And, and it's the idea of him being so beautiful at the minutiae, the individual detail, and his the, the way his gaze, whatever he's staring at, he gives the same amount of attention to a, sort yeah. of a, a leaf on a tree as to yeah. a, a penis in, yeah. in a sex scene. And he does it in that sort of very democratic fashion. But the central yeah. text in really all of, of Updike are four novels that he wrote at the end of every decade from the 1950s onward, published at the beginning of the next one, the Rabbit uh, to Trilogy. There's some short stories as well, but there's four main books. Begins with Rabbit yeah. Run, the beginning of the 60s, then it's Rabbit Redux, then it's Rabbit is Rich, and then it's Rabbit yeah. at Rest. And they are these books about America seen through the eyes of a ordinary man in Brewer, Pennsylvania, a former basketball star called Rabbit Angstrom. Rabbit's his childhood nickname. Harry Angstrom, yeah. Rabbit yeah. is his nickname, yeah. Yeah, for, for his whole whole uh, life. And they're told in the present tense. And if you read them together, when I first read Updike, I bought the Everyman four books together. Right. And therefore, it's about 1,300 pages, maybe even more than that, million, more than a million words. Yeah. of the whole life of Rabbit Angstrom, who he kills off absurdly early, actually. He kills off in his early 60s, and he could yeah. have kept him, kept him alive. Yeah, although there is a novella, you may know this, called uh, Rabbit Remembered, uh, which is a yeah, novella. It's about half the size of all the others, and it's got all the other characters living 10 years, as all they are, as they all are, uh, after his death, and it kind of tidies stuff up a bit. It's not great, like quite a lot of later up, Dyke. I kind of wish he hadn't written that one. Yeah, I think that's exactly, because I've been rereading Rabbit in preparation for talking about this. And what strikes me about reading bits of all of them is, even from the beginning, Rabbit is has this realism of being this sagging figure. He's already kind of putting weight mm. on, even in his 20s and his the beginning. Yeah. He's already a failure. He's already experiencing the kind of gravity of everyday existence. Everything yeah. is just on the fall. And therefore, there is nothing romantic about it. No. And I wonder what we're talking about here with the Rabbit is the kind of anti-romanticism. It's that, that willingness to think about the touch and feel of life as it is rather than as we want it to be. Mm, that's so true. Well, let me give you an example, which I think also relates to what we've been talking about earlier about Updike naming the world anew, because I want to be clear about that. That isn't just surfaces. He can do surfaces. He can describe the head of a lettuce as as it's being cut up by a suburban housewife in ways that make you look at the pattern of a head of a lettuce like you've never done before. But actually, it's always deeper than that. So, for example, in Rabbit Redux, which is probably the worst of the Rabbit books, Uh, particularly because, and we'll get onto the politics later, there's uh, just, there's this kind of racist character in that, uh, which now just seems amazing in a way. Uh, But forgetting that for the minute, at the start of that book, Harry is told by his father-in-law, it's the first page of two pages this happens, uh, they're in a bar and his father-in-law tells him that he thinks that Janice, his wife, Harry's wife, is having an affair. Now, in almost any novelist, I would say, well, not any, but 99% novelists, that if you were seeing it from the point of view of Harry, which you are in, in the book, that would inspire jealousy or rage or, you know, anger, upset, whatever. What he says is, I can think I can remember this, he says that inside Harry, a hopeful coldness yeah. inside Harry grows. 
that there might be something to break apart, you know, that all the news is not in yet. There might be something yet to break apart this stale piece. That's slightly misremembered. But it's so brilliantly complex and yeah. true about the unjudgmental. That's the thing. Updike's always unbelievably unjudgmental. He wanted to show the world. He didn't want to tell you what was right or wrong, even though he himself was a religious man, about how you might feel conflicted as a middle-aged man. He's a middle-aged, He's getting on for middle age by Rabbit Redux that your wife is having an effect. You might actually not just think, as most novelists have done since Flaubert or since Tolstoy, you know, Fury or Rage or whatever. You might think, I'm cold about that. I'm disturbed by it. I'm anxious about it. But at some level, it also says my life is going to change. And because I'm worried about middle age and despair of that, that something is interesting about that. All the news is not in yet. It gives me goose pimples to think of it, right? And you know what is giving me goose pimples, which is really interesting as what you said about anti-romanticness, is the complexity. I find the complexity has a f- physical effect on me as a reader. Uh, there's another example, and actually there's, there's another example in the first book about, you mentioned race, and the character I think you're talking about in Rabbit Redux is Skeeter. Skeeter and this, yeah. was, this book was written in the 60s, so civil rights movement. Uh, up there, I think this book was getting, reading too much Joyce as well. So instead of it being this very beautiful realism, the unromantically beautiful realism, there's little bits of, uh, of wishy-washy James Joyceiness, I think, that gets into that book, which which is sort of the spirit of the sixties. It's a bit experimental as a novel, which is not what. Up- well, well, there's a bit of that in quite a lot of his work. That's in couples as well. You, there's yeah. a lot of consciousness in couples. So there's lots of beautiful writing in couples. I'm just going to quote something else. I do love quoting Updike, partly because I think if you read a lot of critics of Updike, I'm not talking so much now about the more modern critics, but ongoing critics, people like James Wood and other people who've said about him that he's kind of a shallow novelist who's just pretty that's sort of the complaint about update that he's not a novelist of great depth that really what he was able to do was just write very very sort of elegant prose um and that is just wrong about him because there's great thought going into that elegance so in couples there's a moment where he describes uh, a character looking out uh they've had a day with all the other couples and all the friends playing games playing basketball and sort of going out with the kids and blah 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 and this woman, I think it's a woman, looking out on the sky as it darkens. And it's about something unbelievably mundane, which is that Sunday and all the sort of playing you might do on Sunday yeah. is stopping and you're thinking with dread of Monday and how it will carry on. And, and, and Updike thinks about all the people. He talks about all the dentists and all the housewives and all people all looking out of their windows and thinking, oh, yeah, it's Monday next. And what he describes it as, he says, the realisation that the adults are not the world's guests, but its hosts. I mean, yeah. how unbelievably true is that? Yeah. And there's a related point, which I think is there's a kind of, there's a thread of cruelty in a lot of Updike, which is not deliberately added on cruelty. It's the recognition of how selfish adult life is. I mean, one of the things that almost ruins the Rabbit books for me, because it's so brilliant, is the horrendous character that is Nelson Angstrom, who is Rabbit's Mm. son, who is a right piece of work, particularly in the later books when he's 20, does lots of coke. He's sort of whiny and ratty and he's got straggly hair and a straggly moustache and he's mean. And actually throughout the books, the one, it's not necessarily a criticism, but it's a sadness, a lingering sadness I feel, is how awful it is to be a child in a John Updike novel. Because all the parents are completely preoccupied with that sense of adult life, that they're always looking for the Mm. next beer and the next cigarette or the next martini or the next affair or... They're always trying to run, as that first book is called. They're trying to run away from the responsibilities of adult life at the same time as being completely saturated in them. Yeah, that is quite 70s. I mean, my parents were quite like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I talk about in my stand-up show that I used to do about my parents, my family, not the sitcom, about how parenting wasn't really a word. (laughs) And I believe Jerry Seinfeld says this thing in one of his stand-up sets about how when he was growing up, his parents thought of their children as more or less the same as raccoons, which is there's one around here somewhere, but I don't know where it is. And <laughs> very similar to my parents. So I think the idea that we have now, which is that parenting is like 
fills your sky. That didn't happen. My parents did not stop their lives for their children. And no, yeah. most 70s parents did not. And certainly they carried on in my parents having affairs and, you know, all this, all that kind of stuff. And in a way, well, I'll tell you what that means, apart from just parenting. Updike for me is the great anti-Amazon review novelist. Because the problem with Amazon reviews, I mean, obviously there are other people like this, but is they really think literature and books are about, do I like the characters in this book? Would I, yeah. do I get on with them? Are they nice? Right? Which obviously, are they nice? Is not something that Nabokov as well, and Dostoevsky, yeah. and many writers would not really worry about. But really... The number of times you read an Amazon review saying, I couldn't stand this character. I thought it was horrible, whatever. And you think like, yeah, that's because what these guys are doing and women is that they are representing life. And you said before about cruelty. I really don't think he is cruel. I mean, not more so than, you know, any kind of like 1970s idea that I just talked about was cruel. I think Updike, as I say, he's interested in representing microscopically life as he actually saw it. And of course, life as you actually see it, if you're a great understander of life, is cruel because life is cruel. People are selfish and you can't write them nice to try and please readers. That's not literature. I buy that 80% of the way, David. Where I don't entirely agree with that is only that I still want to have an investment in seeing, I've talked about this in, in another podcast actually as well, an investment in their fulfillment of their, their lives. I care so you're right. We need to care about Harry Angstrom, and we do. Yeah. No, we uh, definitely care about Harry Angstrom. There's no question of that. But I, I would say that's a great trick. I mean, one of the great sleight of hands. Harry Rabbit is a great literary sleight of hand in lots of ways, and, one, and possibly in the way that we're discussing here, just to get into it another way, which is, of course, Harry, as you've said, is a very ordinary bloke. He sells cars. Um, he basically, you know has very ordinary at some level attitude to life he's quite right wing and blah 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 and yet um even though the book is totally in his view and here from his point of view updike applies all his literary skills to harry's thoughts so harry harry could not say that feeling i'm having now is a hopeful coldness that makes me feel that all the news is not in yet harry couldn't articulate that he's not clever enough right but you know as a reader what's feeling Harry Armstrong, the not very clever person, is feeling, yeah. right? And it's it's a very clever trick. By the way, if I could just add as a sidebar, it's one of the things I really like about Updike compared to Bellow and to some extent Roth, because Bellow, who was ahead of, I would say, Updike in the sort of literary stakes for years during the time of the great male narcissist, writes almost exclusively about people like Bellow, i.e. professors, yeah. academics, great thinkers, so that he can show what a clever person he is. Harry Angstrom is not a clever person, and yet Updike is able to write him in such a clever way that you can still, you know, luxuriate in Updike's writing. But, sorry, I'm going to let you speak in a minute. Sorry, I'm so passionate about all this stuff. No, go um, ahead, go ahead. But just to say, but I think also Updike is able to let Harry behave incredibly badly, I guess, by sort of modern standards, although he's so unjudgmental, I just think, for Updike, it's Harry behaving just like husbands did, um, and there's no judgment involved. But he's able to do that, and you you do still care about him because you're so in his thoughts, and he's vulnerable, and he's you know contradictory, and he's all the things that humans are, and you know it so much. And I would just say anyone who thinks, well, I'm not engaged with this person because you know, he's with his wife and then he appears to have left her for Ruth, who used to be a prostitute, and now he's gone back to his wife. That's terrible behaviour. I mean. You know, I know the world we live in now. It's fucking judgmental and people do write people off because they behave badly. But I feel that there's no mercy in that and there's no truth. And actually, there's a moment in the first book, which I always remember, which I think is this example of the fantastic honesty. At one point, this is relatively early on, Harry, this is now in early... So we're in 50s America, I think, in, in the first one, aren't we, in, in Rabbit Run? First one is in 1959. They're all yeah. set in nines. So yes, the first exactly. one is 59, and the second one is 69, and then 79. By the way, just I, I should say before we move away from because I know you're, we're talking about him a lot, I personally think that Rabbit is Rich is the greatest one. It definitely is. That. As a standalone, actually, I read it before the others because I didn't know. I didn't know it was a tetralogy or whatever it's called, a sequence, when I first read it. I still think Rabbit is Rich. Dated though it will be, there's a huge wife-swapping scene at the end and all the rest of it. 
is the greatest novel of possibly the 20th century, certainly of the post-war period for me. I think that it's definitely the greatest uh, of the series. But in the first one, and you can see the greatest, if, you, if people haven't read this, if you just read the first 10 paras of the first book, there's a basketball scene uh, with some kids playing basketball. Harry Angstrom is already 24, already a bit fat. He used to be this great basketball star and he plays pickup basketball with a bunch of kids. It's all written in the present tense. That's the other thing about this series. It's all in the present tense. And you are just there with this very beautifully, deftly, descriptively turned scene. A little bit after that, David, there's a moment where he talks about what it is to be around black people. Yeah. And in it, he... I can't remember exactly what that is, but I'm sure it's racist. Well, it's kind of racist, except it's sort of the racism of Harry Angstrom in 1959. And it's saying how he looks at black people's faces and bodies and he's slightly threatened by them. He's also slightly fond of them because he's a bit downtrodden himself. Yeah. The way it actually picks up the physical differences that a man like Harry would notice between himself as a six foot four basketball playing white man and some other guys who work with him in this menial job who are black guys. It is unafraid of considering the difference between two people because that's what Harry Angstrom would be thinking of in 1959 as he was thinking about the black guys he works with. And it's actually rather beautiful because it's completely honest. It's fearless. There's no second guessing. I mean, not that Updike, you know, that was part of what he would do anyway, but, you know, these guys were writing, you know, and this is a great liberty that then license that, you know, writers do not have now, for better or worse, they were writing without hearing the Twitter mob in their ears as they write. You know, they did not have to second guess uh, a bunch of people telling them that what they've written was heinous, uh, whether or not it was. I mean, Bello in Mr. Sambler's Planet writes one of the most racist scenes I've ever read, where Mr. Sambler, who is terrified the whole time he's in the book by a black pickpocket that he sees on a bus, gets off the bus, the pickpocket follows him, corners him in an alleyway, and the pickpocket gets out his penis and there's just two pages of incredibly racist writing, weird racist writing about the great snake-like blackness of this man's penis. And it's a year later, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But what is unquestionable, because part of the problem is what you've just described, the separation of Updike and Harry Angstrom, who is a very different person in lots of ways, or even though he's, you know, Updike certainly channeling something through him. Mr. Samler is just like Bella. He's an academic, he's a thinker, he's a, you know, he's a writer, you know, he feels like a version of Bellow. So it doesn't feel like you've got that separation thing. And also, there's no connection, like you've just described, between Mr. Samler and the pickpocket. There's no that yeah. sense of actually we, you know, there is something binding me to this person. He's just horrified <laughs> by him. So all that is bad, but it all is also illustrative of what you say, that these guys did not hear being told off for whatever they were writing as they were writing it. We should probably talk about women, by the way. Well, let's talk about women and and sex, because this is another thing that's held against Updike. It's It's the main thing, I would say. I would say Updike, although, you know, they all suffer uh, badly contextually from race, I would say Updike's main thing in the way that he's talked about, I read recently, I can't remember who it was, I'm afraid, uh, and should do, but um, a woman, a young female critic, had gone and read all his books and written a long piece. And it's very good, but it is totally written from the point of view of, you know, this was an exhausting, difficult process, I feel, washed out by the sheer force of spending all my time with such a hyper-male gaze. Patricia Lockwood, Patricia Lockwood in the yeah. LRB, malfunctioning okay. sex robot, Updike yeah. Redux is the name of the book. Yeah, well, and people calling him a penis with a thesaurus and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. the male gaze thing... What Updike called, because he was aware of this towards the end of his life, where obviously things had changed, he, he said, I am a man and I have to sing my own song in the end. And I think that, again, is... I think that's right. I think a great novelist cannot write to please everyone. And actually, I think Updike wrote a lot of really brilliant female characters, but he was certainly as cruel about women as about everything else. Um, so let's talk about him and sex, because... In your comedy, you talk very frankly about sex and very unembarrassedly about sex. There is a problem generally when male authors, and I think the great male narcissists that you talk about, don't do sex very well often. Um, do you think Updike's good at writing about sex? 
I do. Uh, although I think that there's a slight complication between what you mean by good. Uh, I think he describes it incredibly accurately on the level of sensation, uh, emotion to some extent. So, for example, just on the level of sensation, <laughs> there's a short story. I think it's in your lover just called where the Maples, if they're the, the family in that particular book, it's the same two family, same couple throughout the book, but it's a series of short stories, have gone away for like a dirty weekend at some hotel in Massachusetts. And they've had a lot of sex. And the man describes the feeling in his testicles as he comes out of the bedroom as a pearly ache. And I think that's like, again, unbelievably, and, you know, I'm sorry for any women who might be all like, well, that means nothing to me. But that, that is an unbelievably good description of the pleasurable feeling of having empty testicles. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think he's really brilliant at that and really brilliant at the sort of microscopic description. But obviously it is male gazy. It often feels like the female body is being, is the site of desire. So the looked at in terms of John Berger and ways of seeing that's the object yeah. and it's the male who's looking. But I pointed out the first thing I quoted was the opposite, by the way. Very interesting in uptight. The first thing I quoted was a woman eroticized and looking at actually a female gaze, uh, a male penis, uh, something that was much liked by a gay man. So that's really interesting because you would not get that in Roth. You would not get it in Bellow. You know, it's very typical that Updike, just because he's, I think, a greater writer than those two, is able to write himself into that imagination. That's not to say that he doesn't, in general, see things from the point of view of the male gaze and certainly the abundance of riches around sex, the lots and lots and lots of writing about sex. And people like James Wood, again, have said, you know, what a waste of time his obsession with sex is, is strange now for a culture which has become much more kind of uptight and much less focused on sex. It's a very 60s thing to be so focused on sex. I say just one more thing about it, though, which is very important. I think Updike's focus on sex, although it's obviously that he was obsessed with sex, something else is going on which is Updike was a religious man. And I think he rarely, although not always, in Roger's version and a couple of others, he does bring it in, but he rarely actually talks head on about religion. But he's got a very particular, I think it's Emersonian religious philosophy going on, which is that God can be seen in the smallest things. There's a very famous story, Pigeon Feathers, in which a young teenager who's religious loses his faith and finds it again by looking at the intricate patterns of a pigeon feather. And so he was always interested in how the human world offered up the divine. And what does that? What is the most likely place where the human can feel in its most animalistic way the spirit of the divine? It's in sex. That's where those two things meet. The smallness, the mundaneness, the everydayness of being a human. It's the thing, the most basic thing we do, apart from eating and shitting, is having sex. And yet it speaks of the divine. And I think that's why he was obsessed with sex. I think that's probably right. I think the danger of that is you end up with stuff that can drift into the ridiculous. This is from Villages, which I think isn't very good update. We're in yeah. 2004. Villages. Sorry, I'm going to have to, I mean, read it. It's probably funny. Yeah. Everything from about 2002 is a bit shit. Yeah. <laughs> Let me, I want to talk about that as well. But, uh, so this is on ejaculation. Uh, and this goes to the point where sometimes the pearly ache is efficient. It's succinct. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it states things at its correct level. This is ejaculation in villages, an astonishing release, a clench that took him back to infancy. It's tight knit of newness before memories overlaid the bliss of being. And that sort of, that doesn't mean anything. Um, and it's... It, Can you say it again? I mean, villages is, I mean, I, I haven't even read it. And that's amazing because I've read everything by John Updike. But basically post sort of round about the terrorist oh. i've actually read the widows of eastwick which is unbelievably bad and it really bad, it is, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I mean i got upset i actually wrote a piece in the times about this about how when you're great heroes i, uh, I talked about bowie and i talked about updike start releasing shit how upsetting it is and how you have to look for them in all the rubbish so in the Widows of Eastwick, there's about two sentences where you think, oh, there he is, at last. Yeah. Uh, but I imagine villages, but can you just read it again? Yeah, okay, I'll do it slowly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an astonishing release, a clench that took him back to infancy. It's tight knit of newness before memories overlaid the bliss of being. Okay, there is something in that, which is not, he's not right, it's not economical enough, you're right, like Pearly Eight, but there is something about that which is about, particularly I would say about growing old, which is what so much of later Updike is about. And I think he had problems with that because I think unlike Philip Roth, who wrote very well about death, 
Updike was very in love with life. Particularly, that's another thing to do with why he was obsessed with sex. And he found death and mortality harder to write about at some level and to, to embrace. And I think that is about how sometimes in orgasm and in sex, uh, all the sort of like memories and sense of time passing, whatever, goes for a second. You know, and all your everything you're worried about because you're just in the physical moment, and then it comes back again. And I think there is something there, but I, you know, that's not as original or as interesting as other things that he would have said when he was younger. And just before we moved on to the late Updike, uh, I was looking at corrections. So I write about the corrections. Yeah, this book that got me into Updike because there is a kind of relationship because he has the same sort of quest for exactitude that Updike has. Can I say one more thing about sex? Go on. Sorry. It's about David Foster Wallace. Uh, David Foster Wallace was the first person to call out the great male narcissist in a, an essay that he wrote in 1997 in the New York Observer. It was a review, essentially, of Towards the End of Time, one of our yeah. worst books. And yeah. one of the ones which really said, oh, he's lost it completely. And basically, he does the thing. Interestingly, Wallace has been totally cancelled now. You may be aware. I'm sure you're aware. Foster Wallace, totally cancelled now for bad behaviour in his private life. Uh, but meanwhile, Foster Wallace called out Updike for being an arsehole, for essentially just writing about these men who just were fat, just like endlessly, you know, what to have sex and just like treated women like shit and he clearly sort of loved Updike as a writer but was so annoyed about this and it was ushering in a whole new thing and Foster Wallace says that Updike and he's talking really about all the great male narcissists here continued to write as if having sex whenever you wanted with whoever you want was the cure for existential despair and that relates to what you said just now about the orgasm. That's true. All these men were, particularly Updike, I think, were terrified of death, terrified of their greatness coming to an end, and sex was the way out of that, I think. But here's the question you have to ask. David Foster Wallace, what cure for existential despair did he find? Killing himself, is that? Yes, that's my point. Yeah. There is no cure for existential despair, <laughs> no. right? Life is existential despair, essentially. So I think him rubbishing them by saying sex, that's what they thought was the cure for existential despair. It's not a bad one. <laughs> it's better no. than your one, David. That's my point. But what it, it can lead to, I mean, this has been true of literature forever. I mean, there's a famous bit in Hemingway, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I won't read all of it, but there's the, there's the, the famous sex scene there. And it's, you can tell it's this sort of groping for existential significance. Yeah. And, and he says it was a dark passage which led to nowhere, then to nowhere, then again to nowhere, once again to nowhere, yeah. always yeah. and forever to nowhere. And it yeah. goes on and on and on. And, you, and Lawrence does this as well. And you can kind of see what they're getting at, that, that sort of sense of rhythmic searching yeah. for something that is in that one second of orgasm is kind of bigger than anything. That's why Updike won, I think, an honorary award at the Bad Sex Awards. I mean, I hate the Bad Sex Awards. I think they're this terrible British sort of prim but sort of sniggering institution. Uh, but yes, it's because Updike was always, you know, in, a, in his own way, but in a way that I think has sometimes got great truth and sometimes not overstating, overwriting sex. Yeah. Uh, I once wrote a piece about how the interesting thing about the Bad Sex Award is the one thing that will never win it is bad sex. It's always people overprising sex, like a lot of literary novelists have done, uh, like writing about how great sex is and how, about how life-changing it is, and that's what we find embarrassing. Actually, shit sex never wins the Bad Sex Award. No, I don't think Updike did do that, actually. I think Updike, very rarely, you have a sense of like, I'm trying to tell you what great sex I'm having. He's trying to write in very detailed and microscopic ways about the sensation and about, you know, the ways it makes him feel and think about other things that are going on, like memory and thought and character, all that stuff, which I think is really interesting. But he's still overwriting about sex. And I think that is a very 60s thing. Um, let's just very briefly just say that I started reviewing books uh, in 2001. And I ended up reviewing a lot of American fiction. And I used to say to literary editors, I'm a great fan of Updike. Anything new about Updike, buy Updike. Can I please review? Because I love him. I'm fascinated by him. I, I think he's very good to write about because there's so much texture in his writing. Mm. So basically over a period of eight years, I got given every Updike book. Right. And it was just so disappointing. Yeah. Because I basically got in a row, terrorist, yeah. villages, yeah. the widows of Eastwick. Yeah. And then I think he died. Yeah, I mean, there there are one or two things which are little saving graces within that. So the last collection of short stories, I mean, we mentioned the short stories, I think he is the greatest short story writer since Chekhov. They're incredible, the short stories. And actually, the the last collection of short stories, there's one called The Walk with Elizabeth, which is really beautiful, about a man who's basically had a walk with Elizabeth, uh, this love of his life at the school prom, 
then never saw her again until a late life reunion. And it's it's really beautiful. I mean, he's quite sentimental in later life, but it's still really beautiful. But yeah, most of the novels aren't very good. Terrorist is an interesting one. It's a failure, but I think it's trying to do something very specific, which is, as I said earlier, that Updike was very in love with life. Uh, and that's why he finds it really difficult. Like in The Wid- the Witches of Eastwick, which is a novel I really like, uh, is full of life and sap and magic, weird idea that these three housewives are kind of, you know, in league with the devil and all that stuff. The Widows is all like flat and dead uh, and whatever. So I think in Terrorist, he's trying to imagine, because one of the characters is a uh, suicide bomber, what it must be like to be in love with death. Yeah. And I think that's a sort of conscious decision to say, I am growing old. I am approaching death. How can I write about death kind of positively? Like, how can I... I was in love with life. What would it be like to be in love with death? It doesn't work because he can't really imagine himself as that kind of person. And, you know, ethnically, there are issues with it as well. But it's it's an interesting attempt. I would say Updike stops for me at Rabbit at Rest, which itself is not quite as good as Rabbit is Rich. It's a bit sentimental. You say, can we just close off by saying that thing you said about romanticism? So I said he's not as good, right? But I'm going to quote something which I think is an example of his later writing and the sentimentalism that's creeping in, the romanticism that's starting to creep in as he grows older. And yet I find this bit really moving, uh, which is, as he's lying in hospital and he's on his way to dying, Ruth, who is the ex-prostitute who he's always had a bit of a thing for, even though he's never managed to leave his wife for her over the years, he thinks he meets her daughter who he thinks might be his daughter do you know this bit who's a nurse who's a nurse looking after him and he's not sure if it's his daughter and it's very unresolved in a very real life way very updike that you don't know if it's his daughter or not but he thinks it might be and she leaves him leaves the room that he's got all hooked up to heart things on harry's hooked up to and he says tell your mum i'll see her sometime and then in narration it says under the pear trees in paradise the pear trees is where they met first in Rabbit Run under some pear trees. And I find that really moving, even though I know it's up like becoming an old sentimentalist and romantic. Yeah, but it's recalling a book that was that's 30 years before that as well. I mean, that's yeah. the, the, the command of that series, isn't it? That it's a one mega novel that spans four decades. Yeah. Elf is an extraordinary thing to do. Um, what I'm going to recommend is very different uh, to John Updike. Uh, it's John Steinbeck is the one I want to suggest as sort of a, a, a great representative of American fiction. I don't know how much you've read Steinbeck, David, in your literally book. none, zero. I'm at zero. I'm aware, and I have I have some copies. I think I have a copy of Mice and Men, uh, and uh, I might have a copy of one of the other novels, but I have never actually read. I'll tell you probably why, and this is my own stupid prejudices. Generally, not that great with rural. I'm generally not that great with, you know, big, sweeping, rural. I like metropolitan novels, generally. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of Updike is not metropolitan, but it's normally set in kind of small towns and whatever. And, yeah. you know, it's not great sweeping landscapes, except in Of the Farm, which is not a book I like that much. <laughs> yeah, well, there's two, I mean, there's two bits of style. There are, there's the grand sweeping novel, which is uh, like East of Eden or The Grapes of Wrath, and they're big sort of solid American novels. And then he writes, I think he's probably the best short novel author I've ever read. When you read for 180 pages, that's the novel, you know, of Mice and Men, which I did at school and it was so good, school couldn't ruin it for me, which is quite something because my school taught English by basically having a, a teacher read out an entire book over weeks and weeks and weeks in a hot classroom. That was how English was taught to me. Right. Even with that, Steinbeck was something magnificent. But the book I'm going to choose is not of Mice and Men, which a lot of people will have read at school, I think. But another short one, Cannery Row. And I think you should read this, um, David, because it's short. It's about these characters uh, in Cannery Row. So it's not sort of sweeping rural. They work in a fish packing small town in California by the sea. And it's a great collection of eccentric characters who all live together. And in it is the character I admire most, I think, in all of fiction. And he's a guy called Mac. And one of the strands of the book is about Mac and the boys and their hobos. Uh, they're kind of able to work, but they choose not to work because mm. they don't think work is important. Their whole life is based around getting enough money to get some whiskey. And they live in an old disused shed together. But when they have to work, they're brilliant at work. They're very good with their hands. They're very dependable. And they live in this small town by the edge of the ocean. And it's about life there. Uh, and it's just very 
deliberately done. It's very solidly done. There's no real effervescence, annoying effervescence. And that's probably a link back to Updike in that, and it's kind of anti-romantic. But my favorite scene in American fiction is this one. I won't be able to quote it in detail, but the spirit of it is that Mac and the boys are sitting outside their disused shed where they live. And there's four or five of them together. And they kind of reject the world because they don't think the world looks out for them. And a mm. parade happens in the town. And the mm. parade goes behind their shed. And they're being observed by a couple of guys. One is a guy called Doc, who's a, the, the local uh, oceanologist, who was a real man who John Steinbeck knew. And he's talking to someone and he looks at these five guys, Mac and the boys, and he says, I will bet you a dollar now that although this parade is going behind them, and they only need to turn their head a little bit to see the parade. Not one of them will turn their head because it's part of the world that has nothing to do with them. And sure enough, this parade goes past them and these five guys just sit talking, staring directly in front of them. And it's a kind of novel about sort of renunciation of, of the world. And what he does brilliantly, David, is he writes very specifically about the land and the environment mm. uh, in a way that I think John Updike would recognise. But he's also determinedly unromantic right. about it. And Of Mice and Men is one of the, is a great novel which ends terribly, and everyone who's read it will know that. But he's writing in the 30s. He won the Nobel Prize, Steinbeck, as well, somewhat surprisingly. And you know, you could make the case that Updike should have won it. Oh, you probably would make that case. I obviously would make that case, particularly because, you know, Bellow won it, and I, I think Bellow is massively overrated. Uh, I can see what Bellow did, particularly in Augie March, that was incredible, uh, but I don't like Augie March because I think it doesn't hang together as a novel. There's lots of brilliant paragraphs. Uh, but anyway, I, I feel I should read Steinbeck. He's a, you know, you, re- you referred to me early on very kindly as being very literary or something, or like you yeah. know, a man of literature. Uh, and I am, I'm, you know... At the end of the day, I'm a comedian and a writer, but I'm obsessed with literature and novels and have written a few. And I um, feel upset when there are gaps <laughs> in... Uh, particularly in Americana. I think particularly because you're, you're, you're so in tune with um, American fiction. And, and yeah. Steinbeck is a real part of American fiction. I, I mean, my, my speciality, if I was going to do a special subject, although probably not on Mastermind, because there'll be people against me doing the third series of Sex and the City. But anyway, it would be post-war American literature. I mean, I've read Fitzgerald. I've read Faulkner. I haven't read Steinbeck. But I they feel more apart from me because of the world. Their painting feels more different than, you know, Updike and Roth. That's probably true. And um, we can we probably haven't got time to fully talk about Mailer because I've read an awful lot of Norman Mailer in my time. And one of the Have fascinating you? things about Norman Mailer is unlike Roth and Updike, he was never in control. And yeah. therefore, if you pick up a novel by Norman Mailer, he wrote a lot because he had massive alimony payments to make. So he wrote very quickly all of the time. The chance of you picking an utterly terrible novel up and trying to read it is pretty high. And only occasionally did he get it right, Norman Mailer. In what? Um, what would you say? Uh, uh, Harlot's Ghost, uh, which is his great novel about the CIA. It's actually one of them. It's a great spy novel. Right. There's moments where he's silly, because unlike Updike, they're all sort of grappling about existentialism at some level. And he gets a bit moony about it in a way that Updike just about doesn't do. But yeah. it's, a, it's a 1,200 page novel about the CIA. And it's like a spy novel. It's really good. I haven't read anything by Mailer either, although I'm more aware of him than I am of Updike, uh, Steinbeck, because of all, like, Eli Gold is a mashup, really, of Bellow, Updike, Roth, but Mailer is the main one to some extent, because what I'm grappling with there is the overt masculinity of these people and something that would become very important after I wrote that novel, which is how do we look at the life as opposed to the art? And I think in the 70s, and people just forgave these people for being geniuses. And I still, you know, I don't know if I forgive them, but I still have enormous problems with the idea that we should expect our great artists to be saints. You know, my favourite poet is Philip Larkin. He was a racist, he was a homophobe, all sorts of things, uh, and, and, you know, treated women really badly. But Philip Larkin was unquestionably an unbelievable poet. Uh, now, Mailer, it's interesting because he's, as you say, not a great artist, but he, he lives the bad life like in the most extraordinary way. And Eli Gold, you know, who tries to kill his fourth wife, it's really based on Mailer stabbing, I believe, his seventh or something. I don't know. I can't remember which one it was. But, yeah, exactly you know, right. I mean, unbelievably at the time, kind of forgiven for this, although if you've seen Town Bloody Hall, 
which yeah. is the conversation, there's public conversation between him and Jermaine Greer and other members of the feminist movement, you'll see he's starting to not be forgiven by women round about then. So Hannah Gadsby uh, did a big show on Netflix that was massively successful. Uh, and one of the things she did was, and I think it's become very the modern way of thinking uh, in that show, which I can't remember the name of, sadly, but anyway, was defy that. We don't. I don't care what their art is like. She says at one point, take Picasso off the walls of the museum because he was a misogynist. Unquestionably true. And I, you know, I, I, I'm listening to that, but I find it difficult that we should judge Picasso by what he was like in bed or, you know, in and out of bed <laughs> and how he left older women for young women and whatever. Not because I approve of that things, but because I think that we can't judge art by how people behave in their domestic lives, although we are starting to. And I think that's right. And that's been there for a long time. There's a bit I write about in my book, actually, about Auden. And yeah. at one point, he was asked to be in a collection of poetry with Ezra Pound. Right. And the publishers said, and they, they issued a press release and said, we are not going to publish Ezra Pound because he's a horrible, massive anti-Semite. And a fascist. And a fascist. And that is, of course, true. And yeah. Random House said... Uh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to publish him in this book. And not and they're, they're not only willing, but delighted to say this. And Auden, who was published by Random House, wrote to them and said this. The issue is far more serious than it appears at first sight. The relation of an author to his work, only one out of many. And once you accept the idea that one thing to which a man stands related shares in his guilt, you will presently extend it to others. Begin by banning his poems, not because you object to them, because you object to him. And you will end, as the Nazis did, by slaughtering his wife and children. Which you could say is somewhat of an overstatement, but Auden refused to publish again with Random House unless they included Ezra Pound, and they backed down and included Ezra Pound and, and Auden stayed with him. But Auden's point was you can't judge an artist by his personality. You've just got to judge the art. <laughs> I mean, we could get at the whole thing here. It's certainly true of Mailer, I would have thought. How much is the personality of the artist in the art? So Pound yeah, and Elliot, the poetry is often anti-Semitic. You know, Eliot in Bleistein with a cigar, uh, thingy with a Baedeker. It's a poem that I've slightly screwed up the title of. But anyway, in one of the 1924 poems, he says, you know, the rats are underneath the piles, the Jew is underneath the lot. Uh, uh, yeah. And there is numerous other examples which I could quote. And Ezra Pound has the cantos in which he goes on about usury in an incredibly kind of constantly beating way, which is clearly about Jews, about the idea that Jews are somehow rotting and eating away at civilization. So then it becomes really complicated because I love, I don't love Ezra Pound. I don't think Ezra Pound was actually a great poet, but I think T.S. Eliot was a great poet, unquestionably. And yet not only was he anti-Semitic, the poetry is sometimes anti-Semitic. But then, you know, I said earlier, that uh, a sentence from Rabbit Redux uh, was giving me goosebumps because it was so complex. I am not frightened of complexity, and I worry the world is now. He said, there are works of fairly high aesthetic value which present attitudes which are poisonous, and they present a problem to the publisher, and he has to decide whether the public are grown up enough to enjoy the first without harm because they are sufficiently aware that the second is poison. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, and I, I think Auden was an amazing poet too. But Auden is out of step with our present world, not just because he's dead. No, not only because he's dead. Um, David, um, we probably should leave it there. We've covered all sorts of things just because we wanted to talk about yeah. John Updike. Uh, but what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you very much, Sting. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.